Plus podcast. My name is Shane Pilcher. I use all pronouns, and I am the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. On today's podcast, we're looking at resources available for LGBTQ plus attorneys and court users. Joining me today is Charlie Arrowwood, who uses they them pronouns and is senior counsel to the New York State Court System's Richard C. Fela LGBTQ Commission. In this role, they primarily do policy development and implementation for the court system with internal and external education on working with the LGBTQ community. Prior to working with the courts, Charlie was a private name change practitioner and name change project counsel for the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So before we jump in, for those of our listeners at home that might not be familiar with the commission, can you tell us a little bit more about the Richard C. Fela Commission? Sure. Uh, The Fela Commission was founded in 2016. It was named after one of the first gay judges um, on the New York State Courts, and it was founded to promote equal and equitable access to the courts and participation in the courts for LGBTQ people. The commission is made up of judges and court personnel and attorneys and advocates, and as Shane said, we do policy development, educational programming, that kind of thing. And it's my understanding that you're actually the first staff attorney in this role, given how new the commission is. Yes, for several years, it was just an executive director. I came on in August as senior counsel, and now we're two people strong. How exciting. And I'd be remiss if I didn't note the strong ties between our Bar Association and the commission. The executive director you speak of was our former podcast host and former executive director, the wonderful Matt Skinner. Yes. Sounds like the commission is a pretty young organization, but in what ways have you seen the New York state court system serve as a leader to ensure fairness for LGBTQ plus people? So most states have an LGBTQ commission that's part of the executive when when states have them. Um, They're part of the executive. And I believe that we are the only state in the country that has one that's part of the judiciary. So that allows us to kind of invite the community in to have a voice in policy development and implementation. It facilitates communication between court users and the system. So, you know, if folks are on the ground and discovering that there are kind of hiccups or or spots that we could be addressing issues in, it kind of gives us a heads up to troubleshoot and they can bring new policies, policy ideas to us, you know, because they know on the ground what needs to be done. New York State also has as part of its attorney rules of professional conduct and judicial rules of conduct a prohibition against discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity or expression. So um, we're kind of at the forefront there. We've added gender identity demographics to our juror forms. So now if you are serving jury duty, it used to just ask kind of basic information about you. And now trans folks have an opportunity to accurately represent themselves so that the court system can also kind of get a, a solid idea of what the demographics of jury representation looks like. There are employee resource groups within the court system. The LGBTQ one is the Pride Alliance. We've got policy 
and programming collaboration with the different commissions within the court system. So the Williams Commission, which is the Commission on Racial Equity in the Courts, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, other affinity groups. And uh, we recently released a bench card for working with LGBTQ court users. So that gives judges kind of terminology and best practices on the bench so that if they have someone in front of them, they know how they can make their courtroom more equitable and affirming. And there's been bathroom signage put up uh, across the court system, letting folks know that even if there is no gender neutral restroom, you are able to use the bathroom that accords with your gender identity. And we've been kind of auditing that to make sure that that signage is up. We've got bathroom signage up across the court system to make sure that folks know that they are allowed to use the restroom that accords with their gender identity and that that right is protected. My goodness, that's a lot of different threads to pull on. So I look forward to developing those ideas throughout our conversation. I will say, while it's glad to hear folks are going to be better counted, I can't say I'm in any particular hurry to serve on jury duty again. I have always wanted jury duty and I never get it. And one day I will. And now I'll be able to check off the right box. (laughs) And I'll continue to look for reasons to try not to have to serve. (laughs) But also checking off the correct box. Okay. It's important to know who they dismiss also. True. That's true. That is very true, especially in the criminal context. Mm. Um, so I know we're going to come back to kind of some of the boots on the ground stuff, right? Like what, what it looks like if things don't go well in court for either the attorneys or their clients. But I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper on some of the policy work that you're talking about. What Specifically, what policy or programming would you like to see the commission take on this year? The commission has already done so much and you included in many of those roles. Yeah. Um, so In the next year or so, we're going to be working on a transition policy for when folks transition on the job within the court system. And that basically sets out some expectations and and conversations that need to happen when a person transitions. So let's supervisors know what to do and and what steps need to be taken. Um, And then it also gives the employee the security of knowing, you know, that they have a little bit of control over how their information is disclosed and how they are going to most, you know, be comfortable transitioning on the job. We're still doing a lot of education on the Gender Recognition Act and implementation around that. Uh, So making sure that judges and clerks are aware of the importance of sealing the record. Uh, And, you know, even though we're a unified court system, we do things a little bit differently in every county and every court. So We're going to be doing a lot of education to make sure that, you know, when someone asks for something to be sealed or wants to file anonymously, particularly in the name change context, that the clerks and everyone kind of knows how to go about that and make sure that, you know, it's not accessible to a data scraping company that's going to, you know, look at all the court records and index numbers and all that and be able to get that information. So coming up with kind of a more unified policy around anonymously filing and sealing for name changes is also a big one that we're going to be working on in the, past, in the next couple of months. Could you tell us a little bit more? I don't want to lose this point. It's an important point. Could you tell us a little bit more about 
the current challenges that are existing there with the data scraping companies online, the web crawlers, if you will, that are picking up parts of these cases? Yeah, so if you file outside of New York City, you e-file if you're an attorney, and those records are presumptively public because they're court records. And so even if a judge ultimately seals that case, if the person has asked for the file to be sealed, there is a period of time where it is actually still public before it gets sealed. So the scraping companies come through and just pick up, you know, docket numbers from A to B, and that includes things that ultimately get sealed. And if you are aware of it, you can go to them after the fact with your, your order saying this record should be sealed and they will take it down eventually, but it's already been put on the internet. So it's possible that other places could have grabbed it from them, even if it's no longer on the court website, even if they ultimately take it down. Mm, so that safety risk is still there, even when the court grants the relief of sealing. So just making sure we catch it before it goes public at all. Mm, that sounds like that's going to be a tricky project, especially as you rightly point out, each county seems to do things a little bit differently outside of the five boroughs and even within the five boroughs. Yes. Yeah. Well, all very exciting work. I know you mentioned the bench card. Can we take a few minutes to kind of talk about the bench card? That was something I was heavily involved in working on as well with the Ninth Judicial District Access to Justice Subcommittee. First of all, I know some, some people are in court more than others, right? There's transactional attorneys. So let's kind of start at 101. What are these bench cards? What, what is the purpose of any bench card, a bench card? And then let's talk about why this particular one was necessary. Yeah, a bench card just basically gives the judge some basic information right in front of their face as they are presiding. And, you know, so they don't have to go look something up or, or stop the presses to figure something out. So this particular bench card includes some terminology around LGBTQ identity. It includes some best practices, how to use certain pronouns, how to ask people the, their, their information, what to do kind of if there's an issue around this stuff. Yeah. So kind of a cheat sheet, if you will. Yes. Yes, yeah. that is exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And it sounds like, OC, if I remember correctly, OCA blessed this to be released into the larger court system around October of 2022? Yes. Great. So all of our judges should have gotten it at this point. If you are a judge and you're listening and you haven't gotten it, please reach out to us and we will make sure you get one. Are there other policy challenges you continue to see in the court system? Yeah, not so much a policy challenge, but um, I mean, technically, I guess it would be. Just increasing representation is really important to us in the legal profession, in the courts. And so that actually ties into some of the things we do with Legal, the mentorship program, CLEs, networking events, that kind of thing. Just, you know, we work a lot with law schools, educating students on what it's like to be an LGBTQ attorney or what it's like to be LGBTQ in the courts making sure they kind of know what their options are, because a lot of people, myself included, you go to law school, you think of a very specific, you know, this is what a lawyer does. These are my options. And so just letting the young, you know, law students of today, not necessarily young, letting law students of today understand their options and know that it's not just about litigation or even just about, you know, nonprofit work or anything. There are really great viable options within the court system. 
fantastic. That sounds like such sorely needed programming. And I have to say, I always love doing those panels and, and having those deeper conversations about, well, what does a lawyer really look like and how much queer aesthetic can you bring and how much of your whole self can you bring to the office? And how does that vary depending on what portion of the legal system that you're in? And I love when law students eyes open and they're like, oh, wow, I like it doesn't have to be litigation or, you know, I have options. So well, nice. there really is something for everybody. Yeah. And we look forward to continuing to partner with the commission as well. We love putting on that type of programming and share the goal of making sure that there's as much LGBTQ plus representation from pre-law to law school to practicing attorneys to legal professionals and of course, judges on the bench as well. But it's nice to be thinking about adding more court staff into the next year, because I think that's kind of a forgotten piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And that's who's interfacing most with court users. So it's really important to have the representation and the understanding. Well, that's a really great segue in terms of court users. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it looks like if you're in the court system and you as an attorney or LGBTQ plus have a bad experience or or maybe you are or are not. I know we have some allies that listen into the podcast. Thank you, allies, for listening. And maybe their client has a bad experience with the court system. So can you kind of talk to us about maybe some strategies, what to do in the moment, and then follow that up with where the FALA Commission could possibly be of assistance after the fact? Yeah, sure. So in the moment, it's really always going to depend on the situation. It's going to depend on your client and their needs. It's going to depend on your needs, your tolerance for uncomfortable experiences and conversations. The the bottom line, if you are in court representing a client, you want to have a conversation with them ahead of time. What happens if you get misgendered? What happens if I get misgendered? Do you want me to step in and, you know, call someone out in the the bigger group? Do you want me to contact someone after the fact and call them in when it's more private? Do you want me to correct someone? Do you want me to, you know, get a little frustrated with them? Like what, how do you uh, want to address this? How would you be comfortable? Are there concerns you have about how this might impact your case? You know, as an attorney, If you are misgendered, you need to make an assessment. Is calling this out going to impact my client's case? You know, what what are going to be the ramifications of kind of drawing attention to this and not just letting it slide? And I know in my experience, I tended not to correct anyone, but everyone obviously has a different style, a different tolerance level. And, you know, some clients want you to to make us think about it and they want you to draw attention to it. So, you know, that's a conversation that you have with the individual client. And obviously it depends on what judge you're in front of, who the staff is, that kind of thing. You know, is it safe? Is it comfortable for everyone where it needs to be? And, you know, are there implications after the fact, if you do escalate this, file a complaint, whatever it may be. All excellent points and the type of case matters too, right? If you have a, let's say a gender discrimination case, sometimes it's helpful to let the opposing party to just sit there and misgender your client and just check those little tally marks on your yellow pad at the table. And then at the end of their statement say, see, see, they're saying they didn't discriminate. And yet we just heard them misgender my client six times. Yes. So those are all really great practice pointers. Let's say the attorneys had those conversations, went into court, the negative experience happened. 
now what? So you have a few different options. Um, there are rules of professional conduct for attorneys and judges that require or that that prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression. We all know that in practice, that does not prevent those things from happening technically, but uh, you know it's good to know that those protections are in place and that you have something to do if you do experience that. So if you experience discrimination based on those factors in the courts, you can file a formal complaint with the um, Office of the Inspector General for Bias Matters. Uh, and that will be kind of a formal complaint, an investigation, and then a resolution, hopefully. If it's something kind of less formal, where maybe a policy change of some sort could be put in place to help kind of not necessarily solve the problem, but to make it less likely to happen again, maybe, you can come to the FALA Commission, Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and, and you know, suggest policy fixes for things. If there's a, a form that you think would be helpful, for example, if you have a judge who's misgendering someone at check-in, come up with a form for checking in where the judge sees that before they inter interface with you, and then maybe it never happens. So it seems like the FELA Commission might not be the place to lobby the complaint, but as kind of a sounding board to see if it needs to get to that point. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, um, I've I've heard the commissions described as kind of traffic cops, where <laughs> we're directing kind of you know the the complaint or the issue to the correct location. So if it is something that rises to the level of needing a formal complaint, it could be sent to the office of the inspector general. If it's something more kind of for us to hash out with court users, we can also do that and ultimately hopefully come up with some sort of policy fix that that addresses it. What are the benefits that you see of going through this process through the court system rather than filing a complaint with the commission or the division of human rights, depending on if we're in the city or outside the city? I think it, it really depends on the situation. If it's something that you, you know, if it's, for example, a judge who's persistently difficult with pronouns, you know, there was an ethics opinion saying that judges have to use gender neutral they them pronouns if it is requested by a litigant. If, if you have someone who's digging their heels in and will not properly gender someone and this ethics opinion exists and you've had a conversation with them before and it's still not working, that may be something that rises to the level of needing a formal complaint and, and you know, needing the system with some authority to come back and say, no, you really have to behave yourself. If it's something less formal, accidental misgendering, or, you know, someone slips up and says something that they, you know, just don't understand the terminology, maybe, that could be a less formal conversation. And, you know, or if you are noticing that, you know, all the clerks in a certain court are misgendering someone or are being difficult around name changes in the same way, that kind of thing, that may be a more kind of system-wide thing than a single formal complaint where us addressing it from a systems level makes more sense. It's more efficient, more productive, and hopefully resolves the problem more efficiently than a formal complaint might. Mm, so you're able to look at kind of the individual case at hand and then also kind of spot what the larger trends are for both the attorneys, pro se litigants and court users at large. 
Yeah. And then we know, you know, do we need to train this whole court versus mm-hmm. do we need to have a conversation with a single individual? Do you want to talk about some of the trainings that you're hoping will be coming up in the next year or so for the court system, particularly? Yeah, we're still definitely doing a lot of work around the Gender Recognition Act. So making sure, again, that the courts and clerks know that sealing is much easier now. There is no more publication requirement in the name change law. Uh, Making sure they understand the gender marker piece of the Gender Recognition Act. So there is a provision in the Gender Recognition Act that allows people to get a, a court order recognizing that their gender marker is whatever they ask for it to be. If you have documents issued in New York, that is not necessary to get in any circumstance. No document in New York requires a court order to change a gender marker. If you were born in a state that does require that kind of order, that's really where that was, what the the purpose of that provision was. So, you know, if you were born in Utah, Texas, something that requires a court order, that's now available for folks. But if you were born in New York, you don't need it. And so some of the the courts, they are being quote unquote helpful and saying, you might as well get this at the same time. But then it's just an extra thing in your court order outing you basically. So, you know, really only getting that if it's necessary, we need to kind of disseminate that information throughout the court system. I did see some confusion around this upstate 2022. They thought that it was basically now required for everyone to get that second order, especially with gender marker X. Like they didn't seem to bring it in as much for the other two gender markers, but for whatever reason X, they really seem to think like you had to have a court order. And like you said, it's not the gender marker that makes that determination, but rather where the identification document is coming from and what the requirements are across the board. Yeah, and we actually were very explicit in the Gender Recognition Act that you cannot require a court order to change a New York issued document. So whatever the gender marker is, that should not be required if you are changing a driver's license issued in New York, a birth certificate from New York State or New York City, any sort of benefits documentation that's all done by self-attestation now, which you just check off the appropriate box. It'll be exciting when the GRA is old enough to kind of start generating meaningful statistics in terms of how many people took advantage of the additional protections that were added. Yeah. And we're starting to look at the ceiling numbers already. Who's, you know, filing anonymized? Are they pro se? Are they represented? And, you know, getting numbers on how many people are getting X markers on their driver's licenses, birth certificates. So it's very cool. And people are using it. Myself included. Same. So I know we talked a little bit kind of throughout our conversation about the need for representation with LGBTQ plus people at all levels of the court system. Do you want to kind of check in about that feeling of still being stuck on first, you know, quote unquote, first and onlys across the system? And how do we kind of break past that point where we're still in many, many layers of the court system in many different parts of the state? electing or appointing or finding those first and and only? I think we definitely are making progress. Um, We're starting to collect that demographic information, not just with the jurors, but we're going to be doing it internally also for court staff. And I think a lot of people are just quietly, slowly getting in there and doing their thing and are not necessarily coming from activism or anything like that. So 
there are LGBTQ people who are just quietly in the court system, but I think our numbers are increasing. And we do have some demographic markers where, you know, we've collected them over the past few years and we are seeing that there is a slight uptick. And I think that that's going to get exponentially bigger every year, especially as more LGBTQ people, particularly trans and non-binary people, finish law school and enter the profession. That number is just, I, I see it in my circles even, just the the law students and it's, it's uh, there are a lot more of us than there were when I was in law school in 2010. It is very heartwarming. Yeah. And they all want to do different sorts of work, which is very cool because we need to be everywhere. As they should. I mean, it's not like everyone has to go to Lambda, right? It's not like everyone has to go to the ACLU. There's still value in being a friendly and affirming face if you just want to do family law. If your heart sings to you that you just want to do trust and saints or you just want to do family law or you want to do bankruptcy, whatever it is you want to do, there's value there to know that there's a safe spot, a safe harbor for folks to come to when they're going through really tough things in their life. Yep. And trans people need wills, especially, Especially. (laughs) you know, trans people file for bankruptcy, trans people use every, you know, sort of law that there is. And so having folks, particularly in, in areas where there aren't a lot of LGBTQ practitioners, having a friendly face in, in a super clinical corporate environment can be very helpful. So And I think it kind of speaks to the issue too of of how much distrust there still is among the LGBTQ plus community for the court system, especially. So do you consider, you know, having the law students go out into the world and all these different areas of law kind of to be a complementary approach to add credibility and trust into these systems in addition to all the policy work that you're doing with FELA? Yeah, definitely. I think the more of us everywhere, the better, um, because we're also able to form bonds and and relationships with each other inside and outside the system. So, you know, I came from advocacy world, and now I have those ties to advocates who know on the ground what needs to be done, people who are representing individual clients, um, you know, direct services folks. And so having people both inside and outside allows us to work cohesively to kind of best problem solve in a lot of these circumstances. And I think it makes a difference to court users. They see when something works the way it's supposed to work. You know, we're a a group of people who's used to maybe being treated poorly, not getting full equity, not getting full access. And so we do take note when things work out pleasantly. You know, when someone gets their name changed without a hitch, they're like, oh, that was actually nice. Like I now trust the court system because I was respected by a judge or I was respected by a clerk or whatever it is. And that makes a huge difference. And the tone is set immediately, right? Mm -hmm. When you walk through the door, you know, it's, you've already kind of formed an impression about what you think the court system is like and how this is going to work for you before you've even seen the judge. Yeah, definitely. I, I used to give out instructions for filing on your own. And it was down to the, you know, minutia, like when you walk into this room, sign in before you try to talk to someone, because it's just going to be a a more pleasant experience if you do that. And everyone was like, oh yeah, that would have, you know, they were frustrated with the person who didn't sign in. And so now like that was just seamless and pleasant. And, you know, that happens when you're visibly queer, 
you know, even if it's unintentional, it happens out in the world. And so having all the tools that you need to know what to expect, maybe bring a friend, have some canned responses if you think someone's going to give you a problem, um, just so you know what to expect and you're kind of able to turn it on rather than panic. The self-advocacy can certainly be exhausting at times, but it is better to go in prepared than caught off guard. So any additional thoughts about how folks are being counted within the system, particularly non-binary people, because this is such a new data point that's being gathered? Yeah, so the federal government doesn't yet ask for those numbers. And so, you know, the court system is required to report certain demographic information to the federal government. And so there's a figuring out how to collect the information that we want, which includes this, uh, versus just the information that the federal government needs. So that is something that we will be working on in the next year. And uh, hopefully we're fully counted and represented and and we have a better understanding of kind of what the numbers look like throughout the system and throughout the legal profession. Well, I have to say, you know, sometimes with the podcast, it's, it can be a little doom and gloom, not going to lie. It's been a, a tough, tough year, and that doesn't seem to be tapering off anytime soon. So it's been lovely to kind of hear about all of these really positive updates within the court system and where New York has so many strengths, both in the city and the state. Are there any challenges that we haven't addressed at this point that you want to make sure that we bring to the table today? I think the the two are really the unified court system thing where we want to make sure that everyone's on the same page and, you know, just increasing representation in the legal profession and making sure that folks know that there are options out there. The court system is made up of individuals and the legal profession is made up of individuals. and so. There will always be things that come up, you know, whatever rules exist, whatever guidelines, people make mistakes, people say things, people have opinions. And so just having an understanding of what your options are when you're in a a situation that you feel needs to be escalated, you know, the FALA commission, you can always reach out to us, even if we don't ultimately end up handling a situation, we can point you in the right direction, we can discuss policy ideas to avoid those sorts of things from happening again. So we're, you know, we want to be in communication with the public. Are those conversations able to remain confidential at any point? Yeah, anything you report to us can can be confidential. What's the best way for folks who might need to work with the commission to get in touch? The commission's email address is lgbtqcommission at nycourts.gov. Perfect. So it sounds like that's a pretty accessible resource. At the top of the hour and kind of throughout our conversation, you've chatted about a number of different coalitions that FELA is involved with. Are there any partnerships that you're hoping to continue to build on this year? Yeah, we definitely want to build our relationships with the law schools. We've done for years, you know, we've gone and spoken to outlaws groups and stonewall groups, but really kind of branching out there and building more robust relationships with particularly upstate schools uh, and then the Long Island schools as well. Mm, And you spoke about the Williams Commission, I believe, as well? Yeah, the Williams Commission is the racial equity commission for the court system. It's been around about 30 years, um, and they do incredible programming. They've done 
programs up in Buffalo about the raise the age law. They've done, they do a lot of stuff. It's really, you should check them out. I would echo that plug, certainly. Well, it sounds like 2023 is really shaping up to be an exciting year for Fila. Yeah, we're going to be busy. And now we've got two people. So we're really going to be able to exponentially increase our efforts. Well, you've doubled in size and we're so glad to have you. We're very glad to continue to be a partner in working on addressing inequities within the court system. And um, any, any final parting thoughts for our listeners before I let you go today? I am always excited to hear uh, what folks have to say and and what their experiences are like. So please do reach out if you know you want to share something about a court experience or uh, if you have ideas. I'm always happy to brainstorm and throw things around. Sounds great. I'm sure there are a number of listeners out there who will be happy to take you up on that. I'm always happy to take you up on that as well. Looking forward to future collaborations this year as we continue to celebrate our 45th anniversary. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. As I've said, we often don't have this much good news on the podcast, so this has really been a breath of fresh air. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, thank you to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.